You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and today we're going to take time and analyze the results of the Iowa caucuses. Of course, we had the big buildup over the last several years, uh, candidates trudging through the state, especially in here in the last couple of weeks with this brutal weather. And uh, Monday night, uh, the caucuses took place. I think most listeners are aware of what happened. But uh, we want to take a little deeper dive into what what happened and what it means and looking ahead to the rest of the uh, this very important year featuring a presidential election. And to do that is one of the best analysts, I think, in the state. He's Chris Larimer. He's a political science professor at Northern Iowa University. He's been on my show before. And uh, Chris, thanks a lot for taking the time. You bet. It's good to be back with you, Robin. Thank you. Well, um, it was an interesting night, uh, maybe for what didn't happen, more for what did happen. Uh, Maybe not a lot of surprises, but what's kind of your overall take on on the results? I'm sure our listeners are aware Trump won fairly big, but what's your your overall, I, I guess, take from this? Oh, I guess just a few things. One, you know, I think the, the caucuses did what the caucuses always seem to do in terms of creating headlines about expectations, right? That you had a candidate that met or exceeded expectations and Donald Trump in terms of, you know, breaking the record for caucus support, getting past that 50% number, breaking the record for both Democrat and Republican caucus winners. Um, you had candidates that some would say maybe failed to meet expectations, particularly in terms of uh, Nikki Haley. You know, I think a lot of people expected her to have or saw late momentum in some polls that she was the candidate with the late movement that we always see in the caucuses. And then um, coming up a little bit short on caucus night in terms of the finish for second place. And then it also, you know, it winnowed the field, which is, again, what what the Iowa caucuses do, uh, where you had, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, dropping out that night, uh, Governor, former Governor Asa Hutchinson dropping out the next day. So it, it, it reshaped the race a little bit, um, and and that's what you'd expect. Uh, you know, I think the other overall takeaways is just trying to think about how the results have reshaped the competitiveness of the nomination process. Um, you know, I think the expectation was that if Nikki Haley would have finished second, and particularly with some distance from Ron DeSantis, that that would have really kind of created a two-person race going into New Hampshire and beyond. And I don't think we see that now. And and now there is all this pressure on Nikki Haley to to really overperform in New Hampshire and try to catch up to Donald Trump. And I think that's that's going to be difficult at this point. We've already seen the DeSantis campaign sort of move on from Iowa and move on from New Hampshire and is now really focused on South Carolina, given the, the evangelical vote there. Um, so, you know, I think it, it it in some ways it played out as expected, um, but certainly the margins were beyond, I think, what we might have thought was going to happen going into caucus night. And then that really reshapes, like I said, how competitive the campaign is at this point. You know, so a lot of this is expectations, and I think the national media in particular had set it up where if Trump got under 50 percent, 
that it was going to be a big sign of weakness. I'm not sure I agreed with that, but he did get over 50%. Um, was that, do you look at that as a, as a significant milestone uh, in his, in his uh, victory? It, it is um, certainly in terms of the headlines and, and for his campaign to be able to say they got over 50 percent. And like and like I said, for his campaign to be able to say that they broke the record for caucus support. I think the other thing for folks who are not as familiar with the Iowa caucuses is just to re always remember that these are party run events and they are relatively low turnout events um, for the political parties. And so, you know, there were 110,000 folks, a little over 110,000 folks that showed up on caucus night. That's a you could argue that that's a relatively small slice of the Republican electorate where you're talking roughly 600,000 active registered Republicans in the state. Um, so that's always important to keep in mind. Now, again, he the Trump campaign did get over 50 percent, and, and that's notable, particularly given, you know, hit the difference in his campaign uh, operation compared to the Haley campaign and DeSantis campaign in terms of the, the presence in the state, both in terms of their organization and the physical presence of the candidates in the state. Um, that he did that that's 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 notable but again this is a small slice of of the republican electorate yeah i want i want to talk about turnout in a bit but um th this gets a little inside baseball but for our listeners uh, i think it's important to understand uh, uh what happened and why uh but trump was a lot more organized this time than he was eight years ago uh my understanding is is that what you picked up as well yeah, it is. Um, I, you know, it, I don't know on how many private events he held, but the Des Moines Register has that candidate tracker um, on their website where they track the number of public events. And I think, you know, at last count, he was up to 22 public events, which doesn't seem like a lot. But you're right. The I think there was an understanding that his not only in terms of public events, but several of those public events came late in the campaign. So he was willing to, to be in the state toward the end of the campaign. But then, yeah, there just a stronger organizational presence in the state. And part of that, too, is, you know, obviously related to his time as as president, where it would be a little bit easier to get organized leading into the caucuses. You know, um, I a lot of pundits and I think some of them uh, are, are built in to be anti-Trump and, and, you know, I guess that whatever but they tried to say that trump's showing was actually weak that he's a former president he's got universal name id and he only got a little more than half the vote i guess my thought was that he he had one candidate in in ramaswamy who was you know just uh they described as being a mini me to trump uh he got like eight percent so if you add that together that's 60 and it's not saying that all of the Haley and, and DeSantis supporters would not switch to Trump. I mean, how do you do you think this was an impressive win by Trump in the end? What's your analysis of that? Or is it a little underwhelming? I guess I look at it as, as, as you know, if we think back to the, your first question, but with expectations, I still think he can probably make the argument that he exceeded expectations. You're right. He is a different type of candidate. We've never had a, a former president run in the Iowa caucuses. That's unique. And I know some people have compared it to, you know, is this similar to 1980 where you had Jimmy Carter running and you had Ted Kennedy challenging him where you kind of had an incumbent in the race. And it, it is unique, but, you know, you still had two candidates who, who put a lot of time into Iowa, a strong, strong organizations in Iowa, you know, held upwards of 100 public events in Iowa. Um, and there were still real questions about 
the quote electability of a Donald Trump in 2024. And so it still had to be a competitive campaign. And so for him to, to get up that where you see that big of a difference in the margin between first and second, I th still think they can argue he at the very least met expectations going in, which were which were rather large expectations. I had in my notes several questions to ask for uh, more analytical questions, but they really seem uh, like they're maybe not as relevant because one was based on who won the most counties, and that wasn't even close uh, in the right. end, uh, right. especially compared to eight years ago. Yeah, it really was just widespread, you know, victory for the Trump campaign. And even if you look at, you know, a lot of the, the, the entrance polls, there's some interesting data in the entrance polls. Um, that, that we can certainly talk about. But, you know, on on many, on several categories, it was really kind of a clean sweep for the Trump campaign. Um, one thing we, we that was a big topic of discussion, uh, you know, I had Jeff Kaufman, the state party chairman on a while back, and he said the Republican Party is now a blue collar uh, party, which I think is is true. Uh, and the big divide, of course, for, for our listeners is whether people have college degrees or not. People with degrees tend to vote more uh, Democratic. People without tend to vote more Republican. There was a thought that uh, Haley might have an opening with more college-educated voters. Was that the case in some of the uh, polling data you've seen? Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, in the the CNN did an entrance poll, and, and so I'm drawing on some of their entrance poll data. And again, for, for folks who are not as familiar with the caucuses, right, you have to do entrance polls rather than exit polls on caucuses because... You don't know when the caucus is going to get over. So you do the, the poll as folks are going into the caucus. Um, but what they found is that, you know, on on the the poll, uh, the overall respondents, you had at least in their entrance poll, 51 percent of respondents had a college degree. Forty nine percent did not. Of the folks who had a college degree, Trump won that group, but he won by only nine percentage points over Nikki Haley He had 37 percent. And then it was Haley at 28 and DeSantis at 26. So it was a nine percentage point lead among college graduates, if you look at the non-college graduate uh, portion of caucus scores in the entrance poll, which was 49%, Trump won by 51 percentage points. So an overwhelming win. And then it goes back to DeSantis at 16% and then Haley at nine. And so, you know, that that Trump got two thirds of the non-college degree vote, I, I think kind of speaks to to exactly what you're asking and that there, what, there still is that seems to be that college divide within the Republican Party. Was there anything else in in, in the, the demographics that stood out to you? I, for, for our listeners, I, I as as my, my my listeners know, regular listeners, I, I teach part time at Monmouth College, and we took mm -hmm. a group of students over to Burlington for a caucus, and I it looked like there there it was more of a middle aged group. There were some younger folks, but there were not a lot of uh, really elderly voters. There was one heroic woman, ninety five years old, who came out because of the weather but was there anything else I, I i wonder if if the turnout was affected a little bit by the weather and uh whether elderly people really uh, 70 plus maybe didn't turn out as much but did you see anything in the polls on age on on age that's a good question you know and again this is an entrance poll of of about 1600 respondents um it looks like that age those two age categories from 45 to 64 and 65 and older made up about 75%, 76% of, of caucus goers. Um, so, you know, and that, and, and like I said, these are caucuses are low turnout events and they are typically dominated by party activists, particularly who have caucused in the past. So it tends to be an older population. And I think, you know, we see that there. One of the 
from this entrance pole, um, and again, with with all the precautions about one using just one pole, um, you know, they always ask the question about uh, born again or evangelical Christian. And one of the questions was uh, was about um, race and religion. And they asked what, you know, proportion of or what they were looking at, what proportion of respondents were white, born again or evangelical Christian. And that was 55 percent of respondents. I think, you know, there was a question about whether or not that number would be even higher this year, because increasingly, really, since the early 2000s, that that category of caucus scores has, you know, dominated, been the largest block within the Republican caucus. And so I thought that might get up closer to 60, 65 percent, but it was at 55 percent. And among those who said, yes, they are uh, white, born again, or evangelical Christian, you know, Trump won 53% to 27% for DeSantis. Um, it narrow it, that narrows quite a bit and flips in terms of second place when for the people who said they were not, where Trump wins at 49%, but Haley is in second with 27%, which is sort of what you would expect or what we expected going in on uh, caucus night. I, I have a question because one of the big stories out of the last two national elections in 2020 and 2022 was the, the slight movement of some Hispanic and African-American voters to the Republicans, uh, which came as a surprise to a lot of folks. Uh, mm -hmm. They're mostly working class, meaning without college degrees. And one of the questions I had uh, going into this entire Republican primary process is whether there's evidence of more African-Americans and Hispanics coming out in the primary process. And I don't know if there was anything there that you were able to look at that shows any of that. I didn't see much i didn't see any evidence of that at the one uh, caucus i went to yeah i didn't see it i haven't seen anything in the in the entrance polls that could that could speak to that yes that's a okay. good question i just had, i just don't think we have enough data on that right now okay uh you're listening to heartland politics on wvik quad cities npr i'm your host robin johnson and my guest today is chris larimer who's a political science professor at northern iowa university uh, Chris has done uh, some some outstanding analysis of the Iowa caucuses, and we've been talking about that a little bit. Uh, he's kind of talked about the overall results, the meaning of that, and we focused uh, quite a bit on Trump and his performance, which was a, a, an impressive performance for the most part, I think, across the board. Um, I want to turn to Ron DeSantis, and I mean, I mean, if you look at the fundamentals of it, Chris, I mean. Um, he visited every county in the state, all 99, called the full Grassley, named for uh, Senator Grassley. He got the the endorsement of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, which was significant. Uh, Reynolds has become a, a power in the state. Um, she got the endorsement of evangelical leaders. And I kept thinking he was going to kind of take the Ted Cruz lane, if you think it in terms of a race where he, right. Cruz had those those similar uh, type support. I kept hearing DeSantis had the best logo organization. And I was thinking maybe that if DeSantis didn't win, I thought I think winning was maybe a stretch that he would get a little closer. What what happened? What, why did he fall so short? I mean, second place is decent, but uh, I think it with those things in place on the fundamentals of it, you would have thought he would have done better, right? Yeah, and and that's one of the the big questions I think for for caucus observers, particularly on the 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 retail politics side of things, where you're talking. You mentioned the full Grassley and the, and the organizational strength. I mean, that's the assumption coming into the Iowa caucuses that you have to be here early and often. You have to have a strong organization in all 99 counties. You try to lock up precinct captains in as many of the 1600 plus precincts as you can, because then on caucus night. 
that's what's going to make the difference, right? Because you, you've established those relationships and, and you create that sense of obligation within the caucus goer to go out and show up on caucus night. Um, that that didn't happen. I, you know, I think that's one of the things we're still trying to figure out is, is it, does that mean that retail politics maybe don't matter as much? Does that sort of call into question how powerful endorsements are? Or is it because his main challenger was an incumbent president? You really can't analyze you really can't compare those two things. Um, I, I I don't know that we we know yet. I mean, from political science research, measuring the the quantifying the effect of endorsements is is really really difficult because you almost have to get into the mind of the individual voter to figure out well were they leaning toward this person already and then the endorsement kind of nudged them over the line or did, was did it have actual persuasive power you know and so I think trying to figure out if it's a what the 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 effect is in terms of persuasion versus mobilization is really difficult and then just quantifying any effect is difficult when it comes to endorsements so i you know i think those are all the big questions coming out of the 2024 caucuses is what role do endorsements play are we going to see endorsements in the future do retail politics still matter i mean you, you know haley and desantis but desantis had more events the the assumption is he had a stronger organization going in than than nikki haley um, and maybe that mattered a little bit on, you know, a caucus night where it was bitterly cold. Maybe that helped keep it, um, keep the race where it was. You know, I, I think those are things we just don't know yet. You know, I had Governor DeSantis on my my uh, radio show a couple weeks ago. He's very articulate, very passionate. He spoke very well about issues that, that I talked to him about. But I kept reading, and again, uh, I, uh, from the national press coverage of his events, and he just seemed a little, uh, I, I don't know, I guess... Uh, cold, maybe uncomfortable in settings. And that's not necessarily, I think, a death knell for candidates, but it did seem to get played up quite a bit. Was that, based on what you've observed or talked to your sources, was that an issue at all? Or or uh, is that just the national press playing up something that really wasn't relevant here? You know, I don't know. I, I think one of the, the interesting things to think about with the caucuses, or at least this cycle, is is some of the movement by DeSantis and Haley throughout the caucus campaign. You know, in that entrance poll that I mentioned earlier that, that CNN has put out, um, they asked can, they asked caucus goers, you know, when did they decide on a candidate? And for candidates who, or for caucus goers who decided in the last few days, DeSantis had the most support. He was at 31% hmm. to... Haley at 29% and Trump at 28. And then if they decided for scores who decided in the last month, Haley was at 32 at, and then it was DeSantis at 29 and then Trump at 25. So, it, you know, it, I think to that, to your question there, and then about retail politics, it did seem that the Haley and DeSantis caucus goers were, were kind of right around those two candidates and really moving kind of and trying to feel out those candidates all the way up until caucus night, because the flip side of that is for folks who decided on a candidate before the last few days or before the last month, Trump wins, you know, almost two thirds of the support there. Right. And and we've known that throughout the caucus cycle that his supporters were firmly committed and have been since since he left office. Um, so I think, you know, it's hard to know on, on how people react to DeSantis's public appearances, but it's it, it seems clear from the entrance poll that they were reacting to how DeSantis and Haley did maybe in debates and, and, and they, they hadn't firmed up that support just yet. I want to focus a little bit here on Nikki Haley. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think there's any question that she had most of the momentum uh, coming into the caucuses. Um, mm -hmm. She'd received support from the Koch brothers organization. Uh, she got some key endorsements in New Hampshire. 
Um, she was getting some good endorsements. She got the endorsement of a, of a state senator here that I had on the show as well from Eastern Iowa. Uh, she seemed to have money. Um, but and, and I was reading, too, that the candidate with momentum is the one that usually does well. Uh, makes a headline in the caucuses. Yet she finished third, which I think has got to be read as as disappointing. Um, is that another one of the kind of many rules of the caucuses that we follow that the momentum candidate does not necessarily do well? Well, I think you're right. I mean, the last few cycles we've seen late movement in the polls by candidates, and that helps shape the expectation stories the next day. And, and I think everybody thought that it was going to be Nikki Haley this time, kind of like a you know, Rick, not maybe not quite the same, but, you know, Rick Santorum had that late surge in 2012. Huckabee had a surge in 2008. John Kerry had a late surge in 2004 uh, on the Democratic side. So I think people that was the assumption with Haley and, and that those that entrance poll I mentioned about, you know, deciding in the last few days that Haley and DeSantis were right there. Um, you know, I think speaks to maybe people were, were starting to move toward Haley, but then, you know, just could, she couldn't quite firm up that support and again we don't know on you know if if part of that was turnout i think one of the things that we're missing from all the data here um and it's, and it's probably something we'll never get because these are party-run events the political parties keep keep these lists is it would be really interesting to find out what proportion of each campaign had locked up or firmed up support among caucus goers who had caucused in the past right because we know with voter turnout the number one predictor of voter turnout is have you turned out and have you voted before I imagine it's probably similar with with caucus going, but we don't we don't have access to those lists. And 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 to be fair to the parties, right? They use those lists to for fundraising. They sell those to campaigns, and that's how they how they generate funds. But I think that would be really interesting. And I wonder on Nikki Haley if you know they were trying to lock up maybe new caucus goers, which is incredibly difficult to do. Um, you know, Barack Obama did it in two thousand eight, but that's that's really hard to do. She did have you know as expected in the entrance poll, she did do well among uh caucus scores who identified as moderate um she won 63 although moderates were a small percentage of overall caucus scores she won 63 percent of those who identified as moderate compared to 20 percent for trump and seven percent for desantis um but you know you i wonder if those moderate caucus scores are maybe not caucus scores who caucus as frequently as more conservative caucus scores yeah that's a great point that is interesting that'd be good to know um I'm wondering, and it's going to be hard for you to answer this, but I'm going to ask anyway, because it's a lot, something people asked me when I got back from the caucus. But do you think, I mean, the weather, uh, yeah. the, the the blizzards we had and the cold, it was 30 below wind chills. I mean, it was freezing when I went into the uh, precinct I went to. Um, did that have any impact? Because to me, the two major headlines were, you know, Trump's impressive win, but also the turnout being down so much. Uh, a lot of the national media is portraying this as a lack of energy in the Republican base. I was hearing stories that a lot of Trump supporters felt he had it in the bag and they didn't bother to turn out, but yet his organization was working to turn it out. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you're right. I mean, turnout was down, um, you know, prior to caucus night, the, the average turnout in the last several competitive Republican caucuses was right around 118, 119,000. And then, you know, it drops down to 110,000. And that's following 2016 when it was their record turnout year of 186,000, right? And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the chairman of the Republican Party of Iowa, uh, Chairman Kaufman, had talked about, you know, they were wondering if they could get to that 180,000 mark again. But then obviously the weather changed those expectations. I, I think that's where having that list of 
of caucus goers and whether or not they've caucused in the past would be really useful, right? To understand was it was it first time caucus goers or people who are going to be first time caucus goers were those the folks who didn't show up versus more experienced caucus goers because that's that's two different storylines, right? If it's bitterly cold and then people who are going to caucus but have never done it before didn't show up, that's going to happen, right? Because you know that it you know you have to pull a lot of things together to get new people to show up. But if it's caucus goers who had caucused in the past, and if they were disproportionately connected to either the Trump, DeSantis, or Haley campaign, that would tell us something about the level of enthusiasm that they have for those those candidates. I got to ask you what you know, Donald Trump in the state of Iowa. I mean, he came in in sixteen, he barely lost, but that was a very, as you mentioned, chaotic campaign. Hardly any organization. It was mm -hmm. basically based on rallies and tweets. And he got second place, which was, in, in all things considered, an impressive showing. Then in 16, he he beats Clinton, and it's not even close. I think his margin was higher than the state of Texas. Um, he won Iowa big again in 20. What is it about Iowa that, I mean, his he does he seems to do as well here as he does in a lot of southern states uh, where he's really well-liked. I mean, what what is it about him that is so endearing to voters in Iowa? I, that's a great question. I don't, you know, I, I, and this is something my colleague Donna Hoffman and I have tried to figure out is, you know, to what, it, because it's kind of getting at that question about it, you know, is Iowa really still a swing state? And do, do we, is it, is Iowa capable of moving back to the left? You know, if we've, if we, if we have swung far to the right, is it possible to swing back to the left? And I, and I don't know that we know enough yet about the, the ideology of, of Iowa voters, you know, for so long, we were accustomed to looking at party registration in Iowa as being a third, a third, a third, where a third of Iowans were registered Democrat, third Republican, a third is no party. I don't know if there's more in there with that no party vote where we're trying to figure out, um, you know, which way some of those folks had been leaning. And maybe they were leaning more to the right than we thought or initially expected. And um, or maybe, you know, they're just more open to to swinging to the left or swinging to the right, that that voter persuasion does happen in Iowa at a, at a higher than expected rate. I, I think that that's a really big question, and I'm not sure that we have a good answer on it yet or a good hold of why that's happening. I got one last question for you, Chris. I got about two minutes here, but um, is is um, is this Republican nomination process pretty much done? Uh, we had a lot of candidates get in and drop out even before Iowa. We've had a couple more drop out, as you said. It's a three. I mean, Iowa punched the three tickets, uh, which they normally do. And I think DeSantis is kind of on shaky ground. But uh, do, do, what's your sense tell you? Is this pretty much over? I think if this were a normal caucus cycle or a normal nomination cycle, um, it, it's it's getting close to being it's getting close to that point. Um, but having said that, given all the legal issues that are still hanging out there for Donald Trump, um, I think that's the one thing that's that leaves us all in the, leaves us all up in the air a little bit. I, I I don't know that that affects how he's going to do in the next few states because it didn't affect how he did in Iowa, right? And his support actually grew in Iowa over the caucus cycle, um, despite all the the legal issues. And so I think he's going to continue to. It's looking like he's doing, still doing well. That he could do well in South Carolina. Um, so the the the, the race and the or the competitiveness of these rates go, races going forward, at least through Super Tuesday, suggests he's in a really really strong position. 
I think it's, it's just the, the other part of it, the legal issues that's sort of outside the, the hands of voters that we, we just don't know that's how that's going to play out. Chris Larimer, political science professor at Northern Iowa University, has been my guest today on Heartland Politics. Chris, uh, thank you as always. Very insightful information. And uh, uh, at least this year, the, the results were tabulated on time and uh, unlike four years ago. So that was that was a welcome change. But thanks for being our guest. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.